this morning concluding our 27-week-long look at Revelation 4 and 5. We've looked at worship. We've looked at who the worshipers are. We're looking at, we've looked at what the atmosphere of worship is like in heaven. Uh, we've looked at the implications of what kind of worship God is seeking. But what's amazing, and if you open in your Bibles, I call it opening to God's final communication to humanity, Revelation, God's final written communication to humans. The book of Revelation, just open to chapter 1. As you're opening there, uh, we have over the months covered the first five chapters. And basically, this book is unique. Uh, it is a gift from God given to Jesus Christ to share with us. And, and so it is the voice of God and written down, it's his final communication to us. Chapter 1 of Revelation, if you remember, is seeing Jesus Christ as he is, as he is in his resurrected glory. God the Son, shining was so bright, he's like the sun in all of its strength. I remember my younger days when I, I was in the astronomy club and I ground my own reflecting telescope and everything, we were looking for sunspots that we had to use welder's glass to look at the sun because otherwise it would, it would permanently injure your, your eyes. And I remember thinking as I was looking at those sunspots, you know, and, and, and thinking about how powerful the sun is of Christ in chapter one, his face shines like the sun uh, in its brilliance. And then in chapter two and three, if you remember, it's Christ's individual letters to every church that bears his name. What he's expecting, what he's looking for, what he is disappointed by in their lives, and that Christ's last words to his church, we, we spent a long time on. Now, 27 weeks in four and five, but as you turn to chapter six, something changes. As you turn the page to Revelation six, everything goes from, you know, all exciting Jesus, you know, being with us and everything to gloom and doom and death and destruction and judgment. And it goes on for three quarters of the book. And, and so as we go from the worship scene around the throne of God in heaven, four and five, it begs the question, why do we even need Revelation 6 to 20? Why do we need 15 solid chapters of judgment, of warnings, of the wrath of God? That, that's a very good question. You can count the verses. You can see that basically if you, if you add up the book of Revelation, there's a ratio of three to one. Three verses about horror and demons and famines and destruction and death and plagues. And then one verse of encouragement and hope. And then three more. And that's just how it goes through this book. And so why did God send us Revelation 6 through 20? Well, I think the message is what he wrote down. That is the message. The message is that God at this present time is warning, 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 and then giving an encouraging word of hope. And warning, warning, warning of judgment to come. And then giving the hope, the, the way out. But most of the Bible follows this pattern. In fact, 
if you turn, in fact, to, to introduce this, turn back to the book of Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. Look at Luke 13, and on the way, you can, I'm going to show you verse 1 of chapter 12 where the thought starts, because remember, the voice that is speaking to us in Revelation is the same voice that speaks to us in the gospel. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book of the Revelation is, and Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the gospels, and so the one who's talking in the first four books of the New Testament is the one that finishes off the New Testament. And you know what? The ratio is the same in the Gospels. In fact, nothing has changed. For every time Jesus talks about heaven, he talks about hell twice. Uh, Every time Jesus talks about hope, he talks about judgment and sin and damnation for those that don't. You see, the, the Scriptures are very much in this ratio of warning, 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 and then encouragement. And so we need to see that, that that's the message that God wants us to learn. And in Luke 13, we're going to read the first five verses, but I want to show you the context. Remember, never, never pull a verse out you know, of the context, because the context is king. It explains to us what the intention of God is in the message. And what we see is, in chapter 13, it's the culmination of an event that starts in chapter 12, verse 1. In fact, it says in verse 1, In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled on one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all. That's how chapter 13 begins. It begins in chapter 12 with the first and only occurrence of that word innumerable. Uh, the, The Greek word is muridon. We get the English word myriad from it. It's M-U in Greek, and in English it's M-Y, but it's the very same concept. It's an uncountable group. Now, all the way through Christ's ministry, it says that multitudes followed him. Every gospel says that. And then a few times it will say, great multitudes followed him. But only here in chapter 12, verse 1, lopping all the way into chapter 13, is the crescendo It's the high point of Christ's ministry. It is the largest assemblage of people that ever came at once to hear Jesus teach. And so chapter 12 and chapter 13 are are kind of like the key information he wants everyone possible to hear because it's muridon, it's myriads of people. So what is it that Jesus wants the multitudes, the innumerable multitudes to hear? In fact, the word muridon in Greek became slang for ten thousands. Instead of saying ten thousands, they'd say that one word. It was like a shortcut. So what was it when you have tens of thousands of people clambering all over each other and squashing in trying to hear you talk, what would you share to them? I mean, it's a very valid question. I mean, every time I'm invited to speak anywhere, I always think about who I am I'm speaking to. And, I, you know, you go through in your mind, you know, uh, do you ever want to be invited back? You know, what, do you, what should you say? And like that. And so it, it's, it, we're often, we are often tempered by the group that we speak to. How is Jesus tempered? Well, he has a, a one-word message. He started his ministry with it. The very first thing Jesus said in public when he launched his ministry was, Repent! And you know what he says all the way through this message? Repent. It's not the most positive, encouraging kind of thing. He didn't say, you guys are great, try a little harder. He said, you guys are hopelessly, damnably lost. And if you don't repent, you're going to eternally perish. 
That's the message at, at the high point. You know what John 6 says? When Jesus got done with his crest of popularity, the majority of people stopped following him. The majority stopped because they heard what he said. He said, you're all sinners. And if you don't acknowledge that, you have no hope. And if you don't repent and allow me to be your savior, you will perish forever. Well, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, let's listen to the voice of Christ recording his word. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, remain standing for prayer, and let me read to you what Jesus said. By the way, the, the context specifically of this is he was interrupted all the way through by the crowd. Three times in chapter 12, if you read it, people go, wait a minute, wait a minute. They, they interrupt him. Now in chapter 13, you see that some of the people in the crowd say, okay, if you can explain everything, why don't you explain these two disasters? A massacre and a disaster. We want to hear your take on it. That's what he's saying. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 of Luke. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Fascinating. Amazing. Christ speaking to the issues that gnawed at the hearts of people and have for thousands of years. And he gives the most unorthodox, from our perspective, answer. Let's bow before the Lord. Dear Father, I pray we would hear your word, the voice of your Son. That's what we have before us. It, anytime we open your word and with, with spirit-filled hearts and eyes, allow our minds to process, we're actually hearing what you said. And you can speak into our lives and through your word, your truth, if we'll invite you to. So right now we invite your illumination, your conviction, and you're moving upon us, especially to grant us repentance, especially in the areas this morning that you and we know repentance is necessary and needful. And teach us how to frame the disasters and calamities of life as we embark on the most gloomy part of Revelation that shows us the future for earth. May we see what you're doing from your perspective, by your grace. And may we be filled with the confident hope and joy of knowing that you're controlling all things. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. You may be seated. As you're seated, Jesus is here confronting questions about two recent disasters. Now, we're not expounding through the book of Luke, so I don't have time to go through, you know, Pilate was the fifth tetrarch, and he served from 26 to 36. I mean, we could go through all the history, and the Pool of Siloam was in the southeast corner of Jerusalem, and all that stuff. But what Jesus is talking about is two historic events 
that affected the crowd. And the tens of thousands of people milling around must have all of a sudden, as the word filtered out, that someone asked Jesus about those two things. And the people couldn't wait to hear what this one that amazed them anyway. I mean, every time he spoke, people that were coming to arrest him forgot what they were doing because he so amazed them by his, his ability to communicate. So Jesus is addressing two disasters. And you know what he does? He, he doesn't do what we try. You know, people come up and they say, why? and, and they, we try and explain why. Jesus doesn't tell why. Jesus explains what God's purpose is in disasters, in calamities, in massacres, in, in things that are inexplicable. But he never tells why. But he he circles around the people's attention with a warning to them. And it's the most beautiful. Let's just go through it. First, look at verses 1 and 2. The people wondered about the temple mass murder. Notice what it says there. The, the Galilean whose blood, Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. This is a group of people that walked the, the 90 miles from Galilee, wherever they were from up there, bringing their sacrificial animals, probably leading them along. A lot of times the, the youngest son would carry the, the little lamb over his shoulders, and they would walk into town, and they were waiting their turn, and they get up to the Temple Mount, which is a 40-acre platform that's still there today, the same one Jesus walked around on and taught on. And they walked up there with their sacrifice, waited in line. Usually there were tens of thousands of them. And when these Galileans got up the line, all of a sudden Pilate's soldiers came and hacked so viciously, massacred them, that the blood of the animals got all poured out with their blood. Just massacred them kind of all together. Animals and people and all. And that scene of of brutality and, and, and massacre and blood, just, I mean, it, it got retold. I mean, even people that weren't there just could picture it. Basically, the idea was that these people had seen a group of innocent, moral, upright, religious people slaughtered in a horrible manner. And they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. They walked, they took their sacrifice, they waited in line, they went to the temple. They were moral, they were religious, they were not, you know, under, there's no indication of any moral reason for them to be massacred. They just were. Well, secondly, I mean, the second one is in verse 4. Look, look at that one. It's, it's equally interesting. Uh, the people had been discussing the tower tragedy. First, there was a temple massacre. Then there was the tower tragedy, and it's, it, it locates this. It's the, the tower in Siloam. And Siloam was a gigantic, in fact, now we're actually seeing the one that it's being excavated today that was there when Jesus was there. I mean, it is massive. I mean, just the one bank of stairs is as wide as this platform, and there were many banks of stairs into it. And it's just a gigantic pool that brought water inside the city through Hezekiah's tunnel. And I mean, everybody went there, and everybody would get their water there, and everybody would carry it home, and it was just very much a meeting place. And so Pilate had decided to build an aqueduct. The Romans always build aqueducts. And to build an aqueduct, you have to build these, these towers that, that 
transport the water and keep it on the right incline. And so while they were doing that, people were down there getting their water, and for some reason, it just fell down. And look at verse 4. 18 people got crushed. And so everybody's wondering. They said, okay, here are unsuspecting people going about their lives who are crushed to death, and they did nothing wrong. They did nothing deserving of death. Can you comment on that, Jesus? Can you comment on massacres? Can you comment on calamities and disasters? And you know, for us, sitting 20 centuries later, we could even justifiably compare these two situations that, that happened in Christ's day to ones that happened in our day. Because there are equally inexplicable massacres, inexplicable calamitous, cataclysmic tragedies. I think about the mass murder of the temple in verse 1 is like a similar one that was in Sandy Hook, uh, you know, at that elementary school. I mean, people doing what they're supposed to be doing, going to work, going to school, just being in their little room, just where they're supposed to be, massacred. And, And so it's almost like they're asking the same questions people all over America are asking. What was that about? How, how do you process when innocent, moral, upright, religious people are slaughtered in a horrible manner while doing what they're supposed to do? Why did God allow this to happen? That was a question on everybody's mind. And I bet it was really quiet with the ten thousands of people because everybody had thought about that. And they were all going, shh, what did he say? Tell me what he said. I want to hear it. You know, I think also the disaster of the tower. Look at verse 4. This, this collapsing tower, just, I, I bet some people can, could still see it. They could still see this, this Roman structure down when, you know, then it made them wonder what other things were going to start falling down around the city. But it reminds me of a similar collapse of two towers on September 11th. Unsuspecting people going through their lives were crushed to death and they weren't doing anything morally wrong. They didn't do anything to deserve death that day. I mean, it's just, it's just probably going to become more and more normal in our world the more evil permeates our society. But these kinds of questions of why is what has gnawed at people for thousands of years. And it's not because they died. We all know that everybody... I mean, when you get to be about six or seven, you notice that great-grandma and great-grandpa or great-aunt and uncle or people are dying. Even though you're shielded, you see that sooner or later, even in storybooks and in everything, people die. So it's not why people die. It's the question of, of why it is that people die unexpectedly, horribly in... It's kind of like the family getting ready to go home for Christmas holidays and they all get in their minivan and they get on the freeway and all of a sudden there's this horrible fiery crash on the freeway and a semi gets all tangled around and that just plays over and over again on the news and we all go, did they do something? Why did that happen? And that's what's going on. Well, how does Jesus answer? Look down at the text. It's amazing in chapter 13, verse 2. Jesus actually gives two responses. The first response is in verses 2 and 4. And it's, it's through a repeated question. Jesus says, we all are sinners. <laughs> the people said, um, we were asking why they got massacred. What are you giving us this theological you know, lesson for? 
Because that is the answer. Look what Jesus says. Look at verse 2. Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose these Galileans are worse sinners than all other Galileans? What he's saying is everybody's a sinner because they suffered such things. Jesus was correcting their theology. You know what the the Jews thought? They thought that God judged bad people and they didn't get judged because they were good. And that's what happens in chapter 9 of John's Gospel when you see the man born blind. That's what was going on when the, the man was laying by the pool. They says, either this man or his parents were sinners. That's why he's crippled. That was Jewish theology. Jesus said, no, you're all sinners, all of you. So isn't that interesting that Jesus used this moment to teach a truth that people didn't think about very much? Jesus said, calamities don't, God is not in the habit of being up in heaven and going, boom, I'm going to throw a tower on that one. He's really bad today. That isn't God's operating system. We're all sinners. And the people that died under the tower weren't worse sinners than everybody else, and the people that were mingled blood with their sacrifices weren't worse than, they're all equally guilty. Now, we will have varying, well, we won't because all of ours are forever forgiven, but lost people that never repent will have varying degrees of punishment forever, depending on how many sins they committed. So there are varying degrees of sin, but all are equally guilty is what Jesus is saying. And so, disasters are very rarely the result of specific sin. Now, after the first service, you know, we're having question and answer tonight, and, and uh, uh, between all of the Christmas concerts and all the holiday services and everything, two people came up to me about Sandy Hook, and they said, is God omnipotent? I heard, you know, some commentator, Christian, said that, that omnipotent isn't in the Bible, the word, and that's a Greek thought, and it's not in the Old Testament and all that. So that's a good question. We'll cover that tonight. Is God omnipotent? Does the Bible say that, or do we just infer that? Secondly, does God ever answer why these disasters come? And that's the second question. The third one is just this right here. Uh, Someone asked after first service, does God direct disasters? So that's a good question, and and it's a very interesting answer. the consequence engine and how that works. But keep going. Look look at the second thing Jesus does because Christ's second response, starting in verse 3, is very sobering. First, he says everybody's a sinner, but then his second response is this. To both disasters, Jesus in verse 3 and 5 repeats the same warning. Look what he says. I tell you no. No what? No, they weren't greater sinners. So I tell you no, but unless you repent, verse 3, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. One word frames Christ's answer to disasters. Repent. It's the same word he started his ministry with. Repent. Christ's first recorded sermon was repent. I mean, it was a one-worder. Jesus was keeping this ratio up. For every encouraging thing he said, he called and called and warned that repentance was needed. Amazing to think. One word frames Christ's answer to disasters, repent. Jesus said, 
that for facing the unexpected calamities, for all the disasters, for every massacre, and for all the inexplicable woes of life, getting ready ahead of time was really crucial by repenting. What he said is, rather than, you know, checking your horoscope, you know, if you're lost and living in an astrological way, or, you know, looking for the most safe way to go to work, you ought to repent before you leave for work or school, because you don't know if your school's going to get shot up or if your tower's going to collapse that day. See, that's, that's what Jesus said. You know, there have been disasters all through human history, and Jesus says that when God allows a cataclysmic calamity, it's only a punctuation of his normal, merciful patience. God is not blasting everybody that's a sinner all the time or all of us would be gone. God punctuates his mercy from time to time by allowing these calamitous cataclysms that get everybody's attention. But why? The only answer is to give us time to repent while we reflect on the calamity. Disasters are allowed by God as reminders that death is around the corner for every one of us, and we don't know when it's going to be, and that was Christ's only answer. His two responses, you're all sinners, and you ought to repent or you're, gonna, you're going to perish. The word perish is very interesting. It's apoluomi. It means to, to be destroyed, and it's what Jesus talks about hell, where he says that they are going to perish and, and suffer the wrath of God, his judgment forever. So, you know, it's very sobering. You know what he said? In effect, when Jesus said, you will perish like they did, what he's saying is the people whose blood was spilt in the temple didn't repent before they were cut down and they're perishing right now forever. And the people the tower fell on also were unprepared and they're perishing forever. He said, you shouldn't allow that to happen to you. Repent. Well, we can see Jesus explains to us then how God's word guides us as we understand disasters and massacres and bad things that happen around us. God's word guides us. You know what it says? We're supposed to be ministers of the reconciliation. We're supposed to, every time another disaster hits, we're supposed to say, did you know Jesus talked about this? In fact, it would be nice to mark your Bible, put a big box around Luke 13, 1 to 5, and put Jesus' response to massacres and disasters. And to say, did you know the Bible? In fact, I remember when, I can still remember, probably all of you can, where I was when the first plane hit the tower in the Twin Towers. And, uh, and, and I was actually at a little discipleship thing at Starbucks. And as I was watching that, you know, it was everywhere. It was on everybody's television. They all, they all said, because they all knew I was doing a Bible study, said, does the Bible say anything about that? I said, it sure does. And I had Luke 13 marked long ago from the last disaster. People are very responsive if they hear God has anything to say. And that's how God's word guides us to understand disasters. Well, each of us this morning live in a world unlike anything in human history that's ever been known. Electronic media has ushered us into a time where all the disasters everywhere in the world are shown continuously to all of us. The last 10 years, I don't know if you see how fast this is happening, but it's just, it's just upon us. Mass, global, instantaneous, on-demand communication means we see everything, and it means we see it and hear it constantly. And this media has catapulted most Westerners into an observation deck of human misery and evil. 
I mean, that's just what we see. And, and by the way, the really bad ones, they just play over and over and give you a new angle on it and talk about it more. Almost without realizing it, we sit and get numbed by overexposure more and more disasters every day. And so we're supposed to think about, instead of just getting numbed and, and kind of having the herd mentality of acting like everybody acts when these disasters come, the Bible frames it, that God is punctuating human history with little reminders that most of the time he's merciful and good and gracious and withholding all this. Well, no generation before ours in the past 10 years have ever seen anything like what we can now see constantly. We can see or hear about every major disaster, catastrophe, and tragedy sooner or later and delivered to us in full color. And as we watch, we vicariously experience sorrow, pain, loss, and anguish, and death that fellow humans have gone through. And did you know, in a month of news, we see more disasters than a 17th or 18th century person would have ever experienced in their whole life. We vicariously, month by month, experience what I call a lifetime of disasters. This is unprecedented where we are. We're each experiencing a lifetime of tragedies. Whether it's a stampede after an athletic event where the weak and unsuspecting people are trampled or the family that barely escapes their home or they're burned alive in a house fire. And then there's earthquakes in Japan and genocides in Sudan and another truck bombing with pools of blood in Iraq and nothing escapes the relentless assault of media. You know, generations past lived in small worlds and you only knew what touched your world or something that's a little wider that, that touches you in a secondary way, but most people knew nothing about the rest of the world. We know all of it all the time for everyone and constantly. And that has a long-term effect on us. No one in the past has ever had to bear the weight of all the troubles of the entire world all the time. And because there's inescapable suffering that surrounds us, and because God knew that, he tells us in his word that perilous, dreadful times are coming and that they're only going to begin to multiply and amplify like birth pangs, which means stronger and closer together. Well, there's almost no escape for the emotional weight that gets piled on our backs. We might not watch or listen to all the news, you know, we check out, but somebody at work or someone at school or a friend or a relative does. And then they start sharing the numbing tragedy and our hearts get another poke and most often our initial reaction to evil things is outrage. But sooner or later, we get numb. And we don't realize that we're placed out there by the Lord to be agents of his reconciliation, to tell people why he punctuated the events of the world. Well, there are horrible things going on in America. You know, 40 murders every day in America, and we'll hear about them on the news. But there are far worse things in the world going on. I mean, I think of Syria. I mean, most of us have kind of gotten numb to Syria. Did you know for the last 600 days, that's 21 months, 100 people have been brutally, in grisly, indescribable ways massacred in Syria? 60,000 people. Burned, butchered, blasted, every possible conceivable way to destroy a human life. But at Syria. And, and we're numb to that. Did you know 121,000 so far? There's an Iraq body count uh, 
website. They track all the car bombings. I mean, it's almost like you say another one, three or four a day, you know, truck bombings and massacres in Iraq. Did you know 121,000 people have been blown to death in Iraq in the last decade? Not soldiers. These are just people going to work, the bakery. I mean, it's just horrible what's going on in our world. Altogether, every single year, 300,000 people are killed as a byproduct of a civil war or a war. Every year, 25,000 a month, year-round. 200,000 are murdered every year above that. Half a million people have horrific, inexplicable deaths. Well, what is Christ's message for all those calamities? Luke 13 is the answer. Luke 13 is Jesus explaining what God has explained from cover to cover in his word. We aren't alive because we deserve to be alive. That, that's Christ's message. He says, do you think you're any worse sinner than them? Do you think that, that, that you shouldn't have died? Jesus is saying, we don't live because we deserve to live. We live because though we deserve to die because we're all guilty sinners, God is merciful. The bottom line of disasters is God is merciful. Anybody that's still alive doesn't deserve to be alive. We all should die. Why does God let anybody live? God is holy and righteous. The wages of sin are death. We all deserve to die, and the soul that sins, it shall die. And the only reason we can take another breath is, as it says in Romans 2, 4, the goodness and kindness of God leads us to repentance. The Lord is saying after every punctuation in human history of a disaster, if you're still listening and alive, you ought to repent. I'm being good and kind to allow you to even live because you're a guilty sinner. Repent. That's the message every time we see it on the news. It's the patience and forbearance of God that any of us have even a moment of enjoyment in life. This compassion of God is intended to lead us to repentance. Jesus is saying, if you're alive and you remember the massacre or the tower falling, God's given you time to repent. By the way, when Jesus said, unless you repent, what did he mean by repentance? Two things. Very clearly, Jesus is saying, truth number one, we must change our mind about our sinfulness. Jesus was interacting with them, and he says, do you think that you're not a sinner and they were? You're all sinners. Change your mind about your sinfulness. Most people think they're pretty good, but that's a damning attitude. Change your mind. Acknowledge that if you've broken even one of God's laws, one time you are headed for hell. Accept personal responsibility for the judgment of God upon you as a guilty sinner. Did you know that's the message of the gospel? And we don't hear it very often. We hear, try Jesus out, take Jesus. Hey, it's a good deal. You can have everlasting life. No strings attached. That is not the gospel. The gospel is repent. You are guilty before God, deserving of hell. Repent and agree that that's true. Say, God, I am deserving of your righteous wrath. I am a guilty sinner. That's the only entry to salvation. But it's not the only element Jesus brings out. Truth number two is, in that moment of understanding our sinfulness, we must acknowledge Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Repentance in the New Testament was always repentance from sin to a Savior. That's why the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You are a sinner needing saving, but Jesus is the only Savior. That's why it says when Jesus is recorded in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody gets to God. Nobody averts the eternal judgment 
except through me. I'm the only Savior. Well, every disaster and calamity should remind us. Jesus taught that the real disaster was not being slaughtered by a mass murderer at the temple or unexpectedly being crushed in a calamity by the tower's collapse. The real disaster is to perish forever. That's the disaster that's looming on every human that we live and work around and are related to. It's the real disaster, the real calamity. Jesus said, the real disaster is facing eternal judgment. The real disaster is feeling the wrath of God forever. It's unspeakably horrible for people who die without repenting. And so when the news tries to numb us, we should turn and say, Lord, stir us. Every time another disaster comes across in full color and description, say, Lord, it's too late for those people. But may those around me who have not yet repented, may they hear about their only hope from me. You know, that's what makes communion so sweet. Do you know what communion really is? It's a gathering of people who have fled to Jesus, acknowledging their sinfulness and embracing him as their only savior. And that's why we celebrate communion. So it should be very sweet to us because we have been rescued. But it should be a, a motivation. Paul says this, the love of Christ constrains us that we persuade people that they need the Savior. Let's bow for a word of prayer to prepare for communion. With your head bowed and eyes closed, the men are going to get ready to serve us. But before we partake, number one, communion is only for those who have repented of their sins and embraced Christ. Number two, communion is only if we have clean hands and a pure heart, and that is asking Jesus right now to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Anything we've done, we're painfully aware that what we would do, we don't do, and what we shouldn't do, we do do. And, and that's the, the mark of a mature believer, that struggle against the flesh. So right now, if you haven't prepared for communion, don't take communion in an unworthy way. Sit in judgment on where you have fallen short in your life of God's glory as a believer and ask Jesus to cleanse and then celebrate his body that he took all of those sins so he could cleanse us and his blood that we're forever free from our sin. Father in heaven, I pray, especially for maybe one person here this morning and maybe this morning they're thinking, have I ever repented? Have I ever embraced Christ? While they hear your voice and you're convicting them, may they not harden their heart. May they be drawn by your spirit. And even right now, sitting where they sit, cry out to you, say, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin. Thank you. I am a sinner. I am guilty. I do deserve your wrath. I do cry out to you, O Christ, save me. O Lord, what a joy it would be if one more joined those communing at your table today because of calling out in faith to you, O Christ. And for us who are believers, may we walk in the assurance that your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And there's no stain too deep that we can't be boldly pure and white before you if we ask you to cleanse us, you do. Thank you for this bread. 
Thank you for your body that became sin for us. Bless us as we worship you together. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.